You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. And so again, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Uh, and when you get there, if you would, please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. Verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thank you, Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Man, y'all are doing great this morning. So uh, my name is Ty Gaston. If you don't know me, I serve as one of the elder candidates here at Providence Community Church. I'm also one of the staff members as well. Um, It is my joy to be able to bring you God's word this morning, as it is always. Uh, But before I get started, I want to uh, really celebrate the Orphan Care Pop-In Banquet that happened last night. It was, uh, it, it really was awesome. I was blown away by the amount of people that participated. A huge shout out to uh, Danielle Carlisle, Marla Wartman, Leah Elder, Chelsea Ripley, Stephanie Jones. And those are, and I'm sure there are many more, but those are the people that I knew were directly involved. Um, so uh, if you are a part of that, um, praise be to God for that. We, uh, if I'm correct, we, we raised almost $7,000 uh, last night. And that'll, and that'll go directly to helping families that are in the fostering process and the process of adoption and uh, to the boys' home that we help care for and provide for as well. Uh, if you could, would you pray with me? Pray with me that God's word will be preached and that our hearts would be softened. <clears throat> Father God, we come before you this morning and, um, and I, I lay my rights in my hands before you, God, and ask for grace. God, you are, the, you are the only God that forgives, and you're the only God that's able to bear the weight of our troubles. And God, this morning we run to you, and we run to your word, and we ask that you would help us see that your gospel is a timeless answer to the problem of sin in our lives, uh, the problem of sin that's in our nation, and the problem of sin that's in our world. God, give me the word to speak, and give those underneath the sound of my voice the heart to listen. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. So whenever I was around, oh, that was sweet. Uh, whenever I was around 11 years old, uh, I often spent the night at friends' house. This is a common thing. Uh, I'm sure it's not so common right now with COVID going on, but uh, whenever I was 11, this was really common. And uh, one thing that we would do is we would stay up late playing video games and drinking lots of soda and eating all terrible foods, everything you could possibly imagine. We would literally clean out pantries and refrigerators. It was, a, it was actually a goal of ours if we could do that. So 
But I remember one of the nights where my friend and I were getting ready to go to bed. His mom came in and announced, hey, you guys got to get it. You gotta, guys got to go to bed. Time to turn off the lights. I get on the, he had a bunk bed, so I got him on the bottom bunk. He got on the top bunk. And when you're young, that's cool. The top bunk is like the cool spot, right? Uh, when you're older, not so much. Uh, because the, uh, because you're, you know, things hurt when you climb up ladders. And if you're irrational like myself, when you're climbing down ladders, you have the fear of sliding in one of the rungs. Uh, so uh, that being said, when, you, when you're younger, the top bunk is the cool bunk. And I remember his mom comes in, turns off the light, and it's like a, 30 seconds later, and he leans over the rail, and, uh, and he says, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I remember being so confused, like, what are you talking about, man? You are 11 years old talking to me in the dark right now. What, why are you talking to me about horses? And he said, no, 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 listen, you need to know, like, my mom may be able to turn out the lights, but she can't make us sleep. And that was the first time I remember really thinking, hey, you know what? You're right. We don't have to do what she said. And we, so from that point on, we were incredibly deviant. I mean, we would, we would stay the night at each other's houses. We would sneak out and do things that would make my skin crawl as a parent. And those are some of my first experiences where I, where I actively chose not to submit to authority, at least that I was aware of. When Moses was leading the Exodus through Egypt, he called the children of God a stiff-necked people. And honestly, if we, had to be, if we had to be clear, things have not changed much. We often find it hard to bow to someone else's wishes, wants, or ways. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We want to do it our own way. Our first, so just the word submission raises the, raises the hair on the back of our necks for some of us. Our first response is, you can't tell me what to do. I don't have to do what you say. But Peter says that submission is part of a Christian's life and gives us the ultimate example of submission in Jesus. Moreover, he says that this submission to authority oftentimes leads to unjust suffering. And this morning, I want you to join me because I believe that the Bible wants to teach us that in our suffering, just and unjust, specifically unjust this morning, Christ is our example, Christ is our deliverer, and he's our shepherd. So let's get into the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 says this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, what we need to know before we jump right into this is that up until now, verses 13 through 17, and even after this text, whenever Peter starts to talk about marriage, he's in this, uh, this section of institution, that there are human institutions placed above us and amongst us that we are called to submit to. Now, up until this moment, everything has been somewhat nebulous, but this is the first one that he addresses where, it's per- where it could be personal, servant to master, or in our case, uh, it would be more like employee to employer, and I'll get to that in a minute. That there's, there's uh, several different ways that the Bible talks about servants. Sometimes the translations say bond servants, sometimes it's slaves. And the first thing that we understandably do is go to our American history, which is rightfully so. Uh, at the end of the day, it was a blot in our history, it was a blot in our culture, and we are um, constantly repenting of things like that. But in the Bible, it talks about servants in three different ways. 
talks about slave trade, which it universally says is evil. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11, it mentions it in the same category as murder. Then there's prisoners of war. So it was this idea that Rome was this giant nation, and every time it would take over another town, another city, it would both take their people and their things and use them for their own good. But this wouldn't have been the case at this point when Peter was writing because a war wasn't going on, and the servants at this point were likely generational. Now, the other way that the Bible mentions servants is it talks about bond servants. So in 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 23, it mentions this. Now, while this isn't the same, this is as close to our modern-day employer-employee relationship, but it's not the same because there were rights that were restricted, but it's this idea that there is this business agreement, so there is a service for service. And oftentimes, this was, in, this was related to educational benefits. So educational benefits were not offered to certain people, so what they would do is, because they couldn't afford it, they would go to somebody that could and say, hey, I will do this if you pay for my education. So in other words, think, uh, if you've ever been in the military, uh, I have, um, you can uh, think GI Bill. So in order for me to use the post-911 GI Bill, I had to have served in active duty for 36 months. And so when, by doing that, they said, okay, if you serve for 36 months, we will pay for your degree. That is a bond service agreement. Bond-servant agreement. And this is what would likely have been the case here. However, though, oftentimes those masters and employers sometimes acted in a very unjust way. And it was usually by way of money corruption. That word unjust is literally scolios. It, it means crooked. It's where we get the term scoliosis, as in, you know, crooked back. And so they, these people oftentimes were corrupt, were crooked, and used money for their own gain. Uh, I, I've told this story a couple times with some friends, but I remember whenever I was a first-year uh, first home buyer, um, you know, you're, re- you're really smart in your first year, right, and with your first home. Uh, so, after, so I didn't know what to look for, but after that first year, I, I had come to realize that my escrow company did not include my school taxes, which means we were behind $1,600. And so whenever, whenever I got my first mortgage in the second year, it was $400 more. And I called my company and I said, what's going on here? They explained it and they said, listen, it's an easy fix. We're, we're just going to add $400 to your bill for four months and you'll make it up com- uh, completely. And I was like, good. I'm good for that. It sucks, but I, I, get, I get it. I get the logic behind it. Now, four months later, I call them and just to check, you know, in the, in the Coast Guard, we have this phrase called trust but verify. And so I trusted them and I needed to verify. So I called them, and I said, all right, I've been paying $400 for four months. We're good, right? And they said, no, actually, you still have $1,200 left. And I was like, that doesn't matter. I mean, I know I'm a fifth-grade math teacher, but at the end of the day, that math doesn't work out. That's not how numbers work. So come to find out afterwards that they were, uh, they had been, they just hadn't funneled money correctly, and it, and it appeared like there was uh, an employee, an employee that got fired for doing their job wrongly and uh, funneling money into the wrong places. And it's this idea that the way that they handled that situation was crooked. And that's similar to what you would have seen here. That there is a crookedness of some of these masters that not only suggested financial, um, financial unjusts, but also physical mistreatment, also dishonesty regarding their pay, working conditions, expectations. So the reality of their life was oftentimes difficult, even though technically they were being paid for their services and technically they could have earned their freedom, 
it was different. It was different. And so we have to be reminded of, and what Peter is telling us is that part of the life of the believer is suffering and that any message that tells you different is simply not true. When when the gospel became a reality for us, if you've trusted in Jesus, the, the truth is, is that the punishment of sin has been removed, but the reality of sin is not. We will still endure suffering because we interact with sinful people. And that you're going to have hard days, and you're going to need Jesus on the hard days just as much as you will the good days. And we learned that in verse 13, prior to this text, that this is all done for the Lord's sake, that it's not arbitrary. But that for the Lord's sake, we, we get to endure suffering because it makes great the gospel. That sometimes God does lead us around the valley and has us to avoid suffering, but oftentimes he leads us through it. And then one of, the, one of the results of that is that you're going to experience pressure to get you to conform in our culture often. But because you're being faithful to Jesus, you have to refuse and you will experience suffering, whether that be in the workplace or relationships. Verse number 19. It says this, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Notice that he says, when mindful of God. So in other words, there's a way to suffer that makes it all about you. That even whenever you suffer, the banner over your heart is you, not Jesus. And the way that we do that is we either make ourselves the victim or the victor. So we either are a victim and make an identity of it, or we are victorious because our will is strong and our will is great. But to be a believer, we need to consider not just what others have done to us and make an identity of it by either being the victor or the victim, but we have to consider what we have done to God. And in turn, we need to respond to others the same way that he responded to us. We live in a culture right now where everyone begins to make an identity out of their victimhood or how they are victorious. But God offers to relocate his people into an identity and becoming like Christ. Only his identity leads to joy, peace, and love. Only his identity leads to a right relationship with God and with others in this lifetime. Being mindful of God means that you are mindful of this identity and that you have the gospel in mind considering the fact that you serve a savior who is the most innocent person to ever suffer. Verse number 20. For what credit is it when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, and the Bible makes it really clear, if you do something stupid, you deserve to receive some punishment. (laughs) If you do something dumb, you, receive, you deserve to receive what comes after that. My children, um, oftentimes, we, uh, I remember the other day we were sitting at dinner, and the rule was in our house, if you sit at the dinner table and you eat all your food, you get a treat. Um, that system tries to get bucked a lot. So my, my son typically eats all his food, and he gets a treat. My daughter typically does not, and she whines and cries how that's not fair. And it's because with her perspective, she, he's getting something she's not. So in her limited perspective where she is the center of her universe, if she doesn't get what the other person got, regardless of personal responsibility, it's not fair. But we have to remember that we are not, uh, we are not the victims here. Christ was the victim that we can't have a bloated sense of what is right and wrong based on our own perspective, but we must see the greater picture In fact, Jesus said this exact same thing in Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. It's this idea that there's a way to respond to suffering, respond to evil, respond to sin in a way that is just like the world. It's this idea of karma, that if I give bad, I will receive bad. If I give good, I will receive good. Jesus is saying here, and Peter in our text, that that's how the world responds. That's normal. As believers, we're called to respond differently, that we have a good God that has loved us despite us, that he didn't do what was fair. He did what was what caused the most reconciliation, which means that in our suffering, there is a means of grace. That it's not just sweeping it under the rug, but being mindful of God and the suffering he unjustly endured for us. That this means of grace allows us to be comforted by Jesus because we have a sympathetic high priest. That this means of grace allows us to run to Jesus because he knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. We run to Jesus because he knows what it's like to have things said about him that were not true. We run to Jesus because he knows what it's like to have your reputation absolutely wrecked. We run to Jesus because he knows what it's like to be legally harassed by other people. We run to Jesus because he knows what it's like to be controlled by others. And that even though you do what is right in the sight of God and judged wrongly, he knows what it's like to experience those things just as we do. But he is the only God who can comfort us. Food will not comfort us, sports will not distract us, kids will not fill the gap, and relationships are not good enough. Our relationship with Christ is the most important thing. And lastly, suffering is a means of grace for us because it makes us like Jesus. That we get a chance to lean into the heart of God the same way Jesus did. That when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane getting ready to endure the very suffering that was meant for us, he leaned into God, he didn't run away from him. So suffering allows us to lean into the heart of God, asking, how can we respond like Jesus? Which leads me to point number one. Christ is our example in our suffering. Verse 21 in 1 Peter. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who just justly. That there's a different reaction that Christ gave for us, for us to live in our, in our current uh, world. That Christ is our example, that an ungodly action does not warrant an ungodly reaction. But instead, with Christ as our example, an ungodly action towards us warrants a godly reaction. That we should respond like Jesus. That Jesus... He, while we may desire to leave this world and escape suffering, Jesus left his world to enter into suffering. That we should lean into the heart of God as suffering comes our way so that way we may be able to give a reaction that is necessary. We have to, we have to be reminded that Jesus committed no sin. 
I mean, to say it, sometimes we can hide behind that phrase because it's so commonly said, and it's true. It's a wonderful truth that he committed no sin because his life was the life that we are supposed to live. But we need to hear it in plainer language so that way we get it. When my, ch- when, when my children feel like things aren't fair, they say, I didn't do anything wrong, Daddy. So the plainer language here behind hiding behind the, the fact that Jesus committed no sin, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. And for those of you that are ones on the Enneagram, that should upset you. He didn't do anything wrong. He only did what was right. He's the greatest victim of all history. Yet, even then, he was silent when he was reviled. One of the most difficult things to do is to keep silent when you are personally being reviled. When lies are spread or your reputation is tarnished, our first reaction is to defend. If you, if you watch the first presidential debate at all, that was clear. The first thing you want to do is defend yourself whenever something's said bad about you or your reputation is being tarnished. But if you feel like you are the final judge of all things right, then of course, how could you possibly sit by and not say anything? If you feel like you are the judge, if you feel like you are the one that has to make sure that your life is right and that you have to correct all wrongs, if you feel like you are the one to do it, of course you're going to revile whenever you're reviled against. But we are called to be like Jesus, who himself appealed to higher authority. The scripture said that he constantly referred to the one who who judges justly, which implies that we don't, right? That there are often times where we look at the world and the way that we see it, we see it through the eyes of our own personal experiences, regardless of how, of, uh, how old you are, whether that's 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60, 70, on, on and on and on. It amounts to nothing compared to the God who's existed for all eternity. That the one with the most perspective is the one that can actually judge justly because he has the most wisdom, he has the most knowledge, he has the most power. We, in our limited knowledge, will react based on our circumstances. We are called to be like Jesus who appealed to a higher authority, that he constantly sought the Father's will and did only what the Father told him, even if that meant to his demise. In fact, one of the ways that Christ appealed to higher authority when suffering unjustly was by forgiving those that harmed him. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? He said, smite them because they're guilty? No. He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Sometimes sin that's done against us is so personal, or at least it feels that way. And that forgiving people who harm us is one of the most difficult things to do in life. And the deeper the wound, the more challenging it gets. Forgiveness is not fair. Fair is an eye for an eye. But not even Jesus did what what he had full authority to fairness would have allowed Jesus to revile back. When the woman was caught in adultery and thrown before her, Jesus is able to cast the first stone and he doesn't do it. It would have been fair and right for him too, based on his own law. Jesus refuses to let Peter kill the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. When given the chance to defend himself while he was on his way to crucifixion, he doesn't do it, even though he had the right to. When Barabbas is released, instead, he doesn't make a scene. I mean, let's think about that. Barabbas is a murderer, a known murderer. Christ is not. And Barabbas is released instead of him. It's barbaric. But Christ does not make a scene. He accepts what is given to him. 
Jesus denies the opportunity to rain down justice on those that mocked him while he was on the cross. Instead, Jesus says, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness is not about what is fair. It is actually about laying down your right to fairness so that others can be reconciled, like Jesus. It is acknowledging the very depths of our own sin. But when we embrace a gospel perspective on our own sin, we recognize that the sin debt that God has forgiven on our behalf is greater than any sin that has been committed against us. And listen, I know several of you in this room, and I know that you've been through some really difficult atrocities, and things, have been, things committed against you have been terrible, and they're not right, and they're wrong. But it becomes a sad and difficult day whenever we don't see that our own sin against God was greater. And I know that's difficult to reconcile in your mind, especially whenever it's fresh. But as we grow in our awareness of God's holiness, we begin to see more clearly the distance between his perfection and our imperfection. And as the significance of Jesus' work on the cross grows in our consciousness, our willingness and ability to seek restoration will also grow. That as you seek to be restored by the very gospel that lines and filters your life, you will be able to extend that gospel to other people. After all, if God forgave the massive offense of our sin against him, how could we not forgive the sin of others? Which, though it may be severe, pales in comparison with our own guilt before a holy and righteous God. But here's the thing, and this is where, this is where forgiveness gets difficult. Forgiveness is costly. It means canceling a debt when we feel like we have every right to demand payment. It means absorbing the pain, the hurt, the shame, and grief of someone's sin against us. It means longing for repentance of that person and restoration. Like sometimes one of the, one of the first things on our mind whenever somebody does something against us is that they need to make restitution with us. The heart of our heart should say, no, they need restoration with God that their restoration with God is far more important than their restoration with me, even though that is important. Their restoration with God is urgent. But this is exactly how God has acted towards us in Jesus Christ. And through the gospel, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the same towards others. Through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to walk in Christ's example And how do we know when we've forgiven someone? Thomas Watson, a Puritan, helps us out here. He says this. We forgive when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish them well, grieve at their calamities, pray for them. How how often do we, when we hear about someone that has wronged us, when something bad happens to them, we go, yes. I mean, I do that just in golf. I'm playing golf against Brendan, and something, ha- and he hits a bad shot, and I hit a good one. When he when he shanks it off to the right into the neighborhood, I, yes. And that's just with something simple as golf. That's not even something that's personal or hurtful. But instead, he says to wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That when something comes their way and they need help, you're the first person that jumps because Christ was the one that jumped towards you. 
Many of us, including myself, find it difficult to arrive at this place, understandably so. But whenever we try to forgive on our own, we will never get there. But if we allow, if we re- lean into the heart of God and rest in the forgiven nature of the gospel, we'll be able to do it. But we need more than just an example. This leads me to point number two. Christ is our deliverer in our suffering. He himself bore our sins on the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We need more than example. If he is just our example, then we are doomed. I remember whenever I was a teacher, I would, get it, I would give examples of math problems all the time for kids to follow. If they didn't follow my example, only, the only thing that was at stake was a bad grade. And because of the district that I lived in, they often got multiple chances at that bad grade. So there wasn't much at stake. But the stakes for Christ are much steeper. If we fail to follow Christ's example, which we have and will continue to, then our eternity is at stake. So before, so he is not merely an example. We need more than that. Before he was an example, he was a deliverer. So what does the text say? It says that he bore our sins. So oftentimes we can make others to be the boogeyman to avoid repentance. The heart of the gospel is repentance. It's the backdrop of it all. We cannot deny personal responsibility and the need for personal repentance. The minute that we do that is the minute that we deny God altogether. Without repentance, there is no gospel. Without repentance, there is no grace. Repentance is, should mark the life of a believer. Repentance allows you to experience this delivering nature of Christ. We need to be reminded that our, that our awareness of our own sin is very small, while our awareness of other sins is very big. Our underlying feeling is that we deserve to be forgiven, but the person who offended us does not. We are living with a small view of God's holiness, a small view of our sin, and a small view of the cross of Jesus. But we need to, we need to know that it was because of our sins that Christ went to the cross, the text says. Our sins. And, and sometimes we can be inoculated to that statement because we hear it often, like I said earlier. Like when I go get my flu shot, I'm inoculated to the flu. I get just enough, just enough to, to be immune to it. And sometimes we can, we can hide behind a statement like our sins, this nebulous hour where it's, we hide behind it just enough to never actually do anything about it. But it's not just our sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. Yes, ours collectively, but we have a personal responsibility to repent before God and receive the delivering truth of the gospel. He then says this incredible statement, by his wounds you are healed, which means you're different now. You don't have to live the same way that you used to live. You have been delivered from being a slave to sin. It's it's interesting, right, because he doesn't say, by his wounds you'll be healed one day. He says, by his wounds you are healed. That when we lean into the heart of God, those, those scars that have been created by people and tragedies are healed. And we can walk in that forgiveness that we've been given and walk in, in, a, in such a way that we can be able to forgive other people. Because the only way that we can deliver a message is to remember that we were delivered ourselves. Where once you were a slave to sin, now you are free. You're free to walk away from pain and walk to Jesus. 
It doesn't mean that sin will just go away. It just means that you're no longer a slave to it. You don't have to sin. Before putting your trust in Christ, that was the only thing that you knew to do. Because as a sinner, without any hope in Christ, the only thing that we know to do is to sin. Hebrews 11 says that anything done apart from faith is sin. So if you're doing something apart from faith, then that is in, in itself inherently sinful. But because of Christ, if you've put your hope and trust in him, you don't have to do that. You're given another option, which is Jesus. And because Christ has delivered you, should you lean into it, you can deliver his message. But he's not just our deliverer. It leads me to point number three. Christ is our shepherd in our suffering. For you were, verse number 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The very nature of our hearts is one of straying. It has been from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve introduced sin and rebellion into the world. Sin came into the world through rebellion and denial of authority. Through independence and pride, Adam and Eve replaced God on the throne of their hearts with their own decision-making. Independence says, I don't need to be under authority, and pride says, I can do it better. They were convinced by the enemy that God was holding out on them, and he didn't want them to be like, like God, despite the fact that they already were. Both independence and pride lead to death. God's people, later on in the desert, denied God for a golden calf and a serpent on two different occasions. Later on in the book in the Old Testament, you see that Israel continued to deny God as king. And God would have been a holy, just, and good king. And instead, they looked around at other, other nations and wanted a man as a king, which was sinful, selfish, and prideful. So they chose Saul to be their first king. And this was done in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And it set into place a cyclical pattern of rebellion and repentance for the people of God that would contribute to years of poverty, slavery, and suffering. And we experience that today. The very introduction of sin itself is one of straying, is one of running away. But like the good shepherd that he is, Christ left the comfort of heaven to make a way for us to be brought back into the fold of God. If you've ever seen a farm operate, sheep want, they stay together, but they also are obstinate and want to do their own thing. But the safest place that they could possibly be is next to the shepherd. The safest place that they could be is is to be inside the confines that the shepherd has created for them. First Peter later on describes the enemy who hates us and hates God, he describes him as a roaring lion. And if we're described as sheep, I I don't think we, we need to have a discussion on who wins that battle. The safest place that we can be is next to the shepherd who will protect us, who will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, who will lead us beside still waters, who will make sure even if it means prying our hands off of things, even if it means that, he will do it. At least he believed enough into it to lay his life down for it. And the truth is that it should blow us away at the fact that God would count himself guilty so that we would be counted innocent. We should be amazed at the fact that God himself became a victim so that we, in Christ, would be victorious. That should blow us away. It shouldn't just be an inoculated truth for us. It should mark how we live. We should walk in joy knowing that we can walk in victory because Christ was victorious for us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to close, uh, and I'm not going to close like we normally do. I'm going to close with a, with a poem that was written by Augustine. Uh, it's an amazing poem, and 
I read it over and over and over again last night just to be refreshed of how wonderful these truths are. So as I read it, hopefully it'll be on the screen behind me, I want you to really allow these words to sink in. How you have loved us, O good Father. You did not spare your only son, but delivered him up for us wicked ones. How you have loved us, the one who did not count it robbery to be equal with you, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He alone was free among the dead. He alone had power to lay down his life and the power to take it up again. And for us, he became to you both victor and victim, and victor because he was the victim. For us, he was to you both priest and sacrifice, and priest because he was the sacrifice. Out of slaves, he makes us your sons because he was born of you and did serve us. Thanks be to God.